This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 90 years ago, Nancy was born. Just Nancy, no surname. She's eight years old, about hip high. She's got a red skirt, black sweater vest, and a bow in her hair. You know the hair, right? It's almost perfectly round, short, frizzy. She is a comics character. You could actually say she is, in a way, the comics character. Older than Peanuts, older than Beetle Bailey and Dennis the Menace. It's also beloved by connoisseurs of the genre. You don't have to be a super fan to love it, of course. It is one of the most broadly successful newspaper comic strips ever. But it's also a snob's favorite, like if the Velvet Underground did Green Day numbers. Why? Well, the aesthetic is iconic in that everyone would recognize it, and also in that it is made of icons, the simplest forms that represent something much more complex. That's what comics are, after all. And instead of being about old familiar characters, like a lot of strips, the jokes in Nancy have a surreal, almost abstract quality. The punchline is as often about the comic's form as it is about kids causing trouble. One of those comics super nerds who loves Nancy is Bill Griffith. Griffith is a newspaper comics artist himself. He's written Zippy the Pinhead for 50 years. He got turned on to the magic of Nancy decades ago by a fellow alternative comics luminary, Art Spiegelman. Griffith's new book is a graphic biography of Nancy's creator. It's called Three Rocks, the story of Ernie Bushmiller. I'm so grateful to get to talk to Bill about his wonderful book. Let's get right into it. Bill Griffith, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I'm very glad to be here. What's on your bolo tie there? Uh, The symbol for the atom. Oh. I collect bolo ties. My category is $9.99 and under. (laughs) And I noticed that there's more bolo tie material than you would expect in Three Rocks, especially given that Ernie Bushmiller did not wear bolo ties. Only you wear bolo ties. Yeah. And your contempt for Southwestern-themed bolo ties really yeah. shone through, which is the main category of bolo ties. Yeah, I know. Well, when I was about 14, my grandfather gave me a bolo tie. And he was living in Denver at the time, so he thought of himself as a Westerner. And I remember wanting to like it, <laughs> but somehow the, even then, decades ago, the Indian motif seemed kind of phony to me, like appropriating Indian imagery or something. It just didn't seem right. So when I finally discovered the novelty category of bolo ties, then, then I was happy. And I have a fairly large collection of those. What was your relationship with Nancy, the comic strip, before you started working on this book? 
Well, it goes back to my uh, learning to read. As a kid growing up in Brooklyn, I remember what attracted me to the Nancy um, Sunday Strip. It wasn't the drawing. It wasn't Nancy or Sluggo. It was the lettering. Bushmiller's lettering was large, and it contained no punctuation marks. So it was easy for a five-year-old learning to read, easier to read Nancy than any other comic strip in the Sunday Funnies. So I was just drawn to it. You know, that was my gateway drug into Nancy. Then I began to get into, I think, more sluggo than Nancy as a kid. For the same reason everybody does. Once you've begun to read a Nancy strip, you're in it whether you like it or not. It pulls you in by its sheer iconic power. I mean, that is the thing that I thought of as you described being a kid looking at Nancy, which is, to some extent, the subject matter of Nancy is kid-friendly or kid-appropriate or kid-understandable. But the aesthetic of Nancy is so clear Mm -hmm. that... I mean, it's like, that's part of the business of cartooning, but it is like at its greatest apotheosis in Nancy. It is such a a clear thing to look at. Yeah. Nancy looks like the result of a how to draw cartoon correspondence course. The characters look like, they look generic, and in many ways they are. But the thing you have to remember about, about Nancy's strips is that they're not about childhood. They are about jokes. They are about telling punchlines. But what they're really about is the nature of comics themselves, how comics are read and what they can do. Bushmiller, without realizing it, was dealing with the building blocks of what comics are. Narrative flow, sight gags, things that only can really happen within the confines of a four-panel comic strip. Other comics are trying to replicate real life. Nancy is just trying to be pure comics. I was struck when I saw the illustrations that Ernie Bushmiller made early in his career in that they sort of reflected the the legacy of the aesthetics of comic strips from the earliest part of the 20th century, which you know, could be really beautiful, were a lot more mm-hmm. complex, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, a lot denser. Yeah. Well, see, Ernie, Ernie started doing comics when he was about 17. He dropped out of high school. He got a job with a, a daily newspaper in New York. And he worked his way up after a few years into the comics part of the newspaper. Um So he learned how to draw on the job. But early on, when he was about 19, he realized he needed more, I don't know, training in just the art of drawing. So he surreptitiously took a couple of years of classes at a art school in New York City, not a college, but just a place where you would go to to draw from live models. And during that time, he became quite good at the kind of drawing that you're talking about. 
a kind of nice illustration-y representational drawing. But when it came to Nancy, <laughs> for some reason that all went out the window. I think it was partly the stress of doing the strip every day that led him to try to simplify things. That part of his development is still somewhat of a mystery to me, how he went from a kind of a nice illustration style to this super iconic, you know, almost rubber stamp style of of comic um, art. Um, I'm glad he did because he he would have been just one more person doing nice drawing in comics. In doing Nancy the way he did, he stood out from everybody else. More still to come with Bill Griffith. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bill Griffith. Bill is the author of the new graphic biography, Three Rocks, the story of Ernie Bushmiller. Bushmiller created the legendary comic strip Nancy in 1933. It's one of the most influential strips ever and still very funny even today. Nancy has inspired the work of countless comics artists, including Griffith, my guest. He's the creator of the daily strip Zippy the Pinhead, which has been running since 1971. Let's get into the rest of our conversation. Nancy has been running on and off in newspapers for the full length of the lives of basically every single person listening to this right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure there are people who are listening who only have the vaguest memories of what Nancy even is. If you met somebody at a party and said, I'm working on a book about Nancy, and they said, Nancy, which one is that? How would you describe it? Well, I teach comics at the School of Visual Arts College in New York. So my students are all 19 years old. They're all sophomores. And I give them a, a sort of a couple of classes in Bushmiller. I show them my book and I have them read it and we talk about it. And they, they, I have them do Nancy strips. Before we start, I ask them, has anybody ever heard of Nancy, the comic strip? And I get no response. But then when I put up a big face of Nancy with her spiky black hair. They say, oh, 
that Nancy. And then I say, well, how do you know about Nancy? And they said, oh, well, we have the T-shirt. <laughs> so Nancy has worked her way into the visual data banks of almost everybody somehow. I don't know, you know, how that happened. But the way to get into Nancy to people who haven't read it or heard about it or just vaguely know about it is to talk about how it looks and specifically Nancy's um, beautiful black hairdo that there's no other strip that has hair like that. She's totally on her own with, with her look. She has like little black hole eyes, yeah, a, a little flared skirt and her hair, as you said, is like the most famous thing about her. It is sort of round around her head and has a big red bow on it and ends in these little spikes. It's a helmet. It's a black helmet that comes down on the forehead and is basically round, but not quite. And it contains evenly spaced little spikes coming out of it. Ernie had assistants that helped him do Nancy after it became really popular. And the workload was too much. He hired a couple of people to work on, on Nancy with him. And he specified at different sizes that his assistants would draw Nancy, how many spikes were to be shown in her hairdo. The one that was the most common was 69 spikes. And he insisted that his assistants count them to be absolutely precise so that it looked just right. And if they didn't get it right, he had them do it over again. He, in fact, specified the type of nib they yes. should use on a pen specifically to draw the, those little wisps of hair. He, he said to use a, a fountain pen that the end of which had been um, cut so that it was a blunt instead of a round end, and then to draw the spikes at a slight angle from Nancy's helmet hairdo. Yep. I think the thing that baffled me most as a child looking at Nancy in a newspaper was that, you know, she has her friend Sluggo, who she interacts with a lot. Sluggo is sort of like a boy version of her aesthetically. And then she lives with her aunt, who looks as though she came from a completely different world. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, Nancy, Nancy lives with her aunt, Fritzy Ritz. So the reason that happened is because Ernie Bushmiller took over the Fritzy Ritz comic strip in, I believe it was late 20s, early 30s. The Fritzy Ritz comic strip was about a kind of an independent flapper kind of female named Fritzy who went through a series of boyfriends, all of whom she dumped one after the other and had lots of adventures and was kind of a pinup in her appearance, you know, wore fashionable, slightly sexy clothing. So Ernie was given the job of taking over that strip. And after a few years of it, he thought, this is a bit dated. I'm going to have to modernize this. What should I do? And he thought, maybe I'll add a kid into the strip who would shake up things, who would be kind of annoying to Fritzy. So he created Nancy in 1938. Nancy just appeared all of a sudden. And within six months, that's all anybody wanted to read. They wanted to read about Nancy. So Fritzy came into the strip 
through her original incarnation as a separate character. So when you say she looks like she came from another strip, she did. But <laughs> Ernie was told by the people running the paper he was working for that he couldn't get rid of Fritzy because Fritzy represented sex. And therefore, Nancy had the perfect kind of demographic audience, men who thought they could get some sort of thrill out of looking at Fritzy and her sexy poses, and kids who would read Nancy and think of Fritzy as kind of the authoritarian aunt who they wanted Nancy to control. I mean, Nancy lives in a world that is so simple and abstract that the only thing that really matters in each strip is like one idea of a joke. Mm -hmm. And it's not even usually like a character joke. Like the kids are impish. Like they have some character qualities, but like mostly she just lives in a joke, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And Fritzy feels like she came in from Prince Valiant or something where it's driven by narrative and uh, complicated background drawings, you know? Right. Yeah, Fritzy wants to act maternally towards Nancy in a disciplinarian kind of a way which gives her a personality. Nancy and Sluggo and the other characters are more stand-ins. They're almost like um, these two-dimensional cutouts that live in the world in which everything is very reduced and iconic. Like the reason I called the book Three Rocks is because that's one of the standard kind of backgrounds that you see when Nancy and Sluggo are walking down a sidewalk behind them. Uh, is, you know, one tree, one house, and three rocks, perfectly hemispheric and shaded. The purpose of a Nancy strip is to tell you a sight gag as quickly as possible, usually four panels. Ernie worked backwards. He thought of the, what he called the snapper, the joke, the punchline. He thought of that first. Then he said to himself, okay, now how do I get there? When you were swimming in the world of underground comics in the late 1960s, did you talk to your comics pals about Nancy? I was reintroduced to Nancy, having been a kind of a fan at the age of five or six, by Art Spiegelman uh, in 1970 in San Francisco, where we were both working in underground comics. He was kind of my education in many ways as to the history of comics. He had a lot of books I didn't have. He had just all kinds of knowledge. He had one book that was printed in the late 40s that gave brief biographies of all the famous newspaper cartoonists of that era. And I remember reading the one about Ernie Bushmiller which included a couple of drawings about Nancy. And I thought, oh, that, that was a great strip. And then Art and I would just talk about Nancy and talk about how surreal it was and how strange it was and how powerful it was. There's this series of pages in Scott McLeod's Understanding Comics, which is like a sort of 
textbook of the interpretation of comics as a form. And they're about the way that we relate to characters as they become progressively more abstract. And McLeod is kind of arguing, and this is from memory, so apologies to Scott McLeod if I'm mischaracterizing anything. But, um, you know, he kind of argues that as the character becomes more abstract in its depiction, more iconic in its depiction, I should say, it becomes more relatable because we can imagine ourselves within those simple lines. <laughs> Nancy feels almost like a joke about that. <laughs> You know, <laughs> like it's as though it's as though Bushmiller figured that out and was like, yeah. <laughs> "I see your five and and raise you ten. Nancy is not inviting you into into her world. Nancy is just saying, "Come to my world and get the joke that I'm telling you, and then leave." You know, Nancy doesn't care if you like her. Sluggo could care less if you like him. They just want you to stay long enough to get the joke and then leave and then come back the next day for the same thing. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, I will talk with Bill Griffith about his day job. He's the creator of the wonderful Zippy the Pinhead comic strip, which has been running in newspapers for over five decades. Keep it locked. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking with cartoonist and writer Bill Griffith. He created the long-running strip Zippy the Pinhead. He's also the author of the new graphic biography, Three Rocks, the story of Ernie Bushmiller, the man who created Nancy. Your very, very long-running comic strip, Zippy the Pinhead, and other works that grew out of the underground comics world where you got your start were often about pushing the limits of what comics were and could be in various directions. And I wonder if part of the excitement of Nancy to you is that it is undertaking the opposite job, which is rather than expanding comics, refining comics to the absolute sharpest, narrowest point. Um, yeah. I'm jealous of Ernie and his, his formulaic approach to comics it um if it didn't have that surreal charge though it wouldn't work you know there are plenty of comics during the period when nancy was flourishing that were simply drawn there was a, a certain cartoon style in which nancy does sort of fit but with none of nancy's intensity there's something that is incredibly intense about looking at a Nancy panel 
that doesn't happen when you look at some similar cartoony-looking strip from the same era, whose purpose was really just to, you know, continue in a kind of tradition. Ernie took the simple cartoon tradition and made it completely his own. Most cartoony comics uh, during his time period wanted to get you involved in, you know, the cuteness, usually the cuteness of the character or the way you would think, oh, I was like that when I was a kid kind of feeling. And Ernie never had that interest. He simply wanted you to say, wow, that was funny. I'll, I'll come back tomorrow for more. Do you think of being funny as a or the goal of your work with Zippy? Oh, yeah, sure. The most satisfying response I get, and I, of course, these days it's all through email, is that someone laughed. Someone said, you really made me laugh with today's Zippy. That gives me the best feeling. My delivery of that laugh may be somewhat indirect. So when someone does laugh at a Zippy strip, that means they understood or they felt or they were happy with the path that took them to that laugh. But yes, my purpose with my Zippy strip is to make people laugh with an unconventional approach to joke telling. I don't do what, what Ernie did. I don't usually deliver a punchline in the last panel. So when someone laughs at one of my Zippy strips, they might be laughing at something Zippy said in panel number two. And by panel number four, it was just a way of the strip kind of ending. But the real joke, the funny moment happened in panel number two. But um, I'm aware that I have a cult audience and Zippy is not for everybody. But I am, for those people, I am delivering, I'm delivering laughter. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm such a Zippy fan myself. And it was one of my father's favorite things. You know, he used to cut them out and put them on the wall in his office. You know, the way that people do with New Yorker cartoons that they identify with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and one of the things about Zippy is, as you said, like, the funny moment could come anywhere. And the funny moment often isn't a joke. The humor is more about just an unusual way of an, engaging with and imagining the universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, Zippy is about wordplay. Zippy is about language. So Zippy jokes, Zippy humor, isn't about the traditional kind of punchline humor. It's whether or not you laugh at Zippy's juxtaposition of three images in one word balloon. A lot of times people will tell me, you know, when I first read Zippy, I didn't get it. I didn't particularly like it. But, you know, there it was on the newspaper page. This is in the days when people are reading newspapers. So I kind of read it without getting it. Six months into that process, a light bulb went off over my head, and suddenly I got Zippy. And they, they don't necessarily describe the strip that did that, but what they're telling me is, it took them not long to get onto Zippy's wavelength, but once they arrived there, they wanted to keep on that wavelength. They were enjoying it, but it was not easily obtainable. 
How many newspapers does it be running? A little over a hundred, down from two or three hundred. You know, newspapers are slowly uh, dying. Although I'm happily aware that it's happening in slow motion. I remember 15 years ago, I was talking to Brian Walker, who does High and Lois, and you know, takes up the pen of his father, Mort Walker, to do Beetle Bailey. And we were talking about the slow shriveling of newspapers. And he said, yeah, it's happening, but it's in slow motion. And I thought, I hope so. And he was right. <laughs> when you think about Zippy being in over 100 newspapers or hundreds of newspapers, are you ever surprised that this page in the newspaper that has High and Lois on it also has something as genuinely strange as, as Zippy? I am just as surprised as a reader who may stumble upon seeing Zippy right next to the family circus. I remember another cartoonist friend of mine, Justin Green, once told me that when he looked at Zippy on the pages of the, the San Francisco Examiner, he saw a gaudy sailboat piloting its way against the current. That's what he said. The other strips were all going in the same direction, down the main stream, and Zippy was paddling up the other way. So, I don't know. Um, I don't have nearly the success that Ernie Bushmiller had, um, but I'm happy. I consider myself extremely lucky to have had a career out of doing something as unconventional as Zippy the Pinhead. Well, Bill Griffith, I sure am appreciative of your time and your work. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, I was happy to do it. Bill Griffith. His book, Three Rocks, the story of Ernie Bushmiller, the man who created Nancy, is a beautiful appreciation of Bushmiller's work. If you'd like to check out Griffith's strip, Zippy the Pinhead, we'll have a link to it on our website at MaximumFun.org, or you can just open up the newspaper and look at the comics page, if you got a good newspaper. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye Bullseye, created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, my new dog, Junior, just ate a canceled check. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Danielle Huesias. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Special thanks this week to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio for recording our interview with Bill Griffith. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team. Thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We hope you will follow us there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Whether you're planning a weekend away or an international adventure, all trips annual travel insurance can protect every trip you take for the next 365 days. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com.
Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.